truck and load. This is Steve Dace. The Steve Dace Show. And greetings. Happy Thursday. Welcome to the Steve Dace Show here, live and on demand on The Blaze. I am Steve Dace. Todd and Aaron are here with me as well. If you'd like to join us today, it's 888-900-3393. That is the number to The Blaze, 888-900-3393. Steve at stevedace.com is how you can email the program. Like us on Facebook, which doesn't like us, so you need to like us there a lot. You can follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show, last name is D-E-A-C-E. It's a Theology Thursday, so we'll continue our series that we started last week on Dumb Things Otherwise Smart People Believe about faith and life. So that's coming up a little bit later on. Yesterday we talked about what's happening right now at the border and got the real numbers and real data from our good friend Daniel Horowitz at Conservative Review. Uh, Today we're going to take a look at the border, though, historically. How did we get here? Uh, how is it how is it possible that today for example uh, across the west we are commemorating the 75th anniversary of d-day when the american people and our allies stormed the beaches of a foreign country to give them back their national sovereignty and 75 years later we have foreigners storm our borders while we surrender our own how is this possible how do we get here? We're going to take a look at that uh, with an investigative reporter who took a look at this recently in a piece that he wrote uh, from Texas and also for the Federalist. That's coming up a little bit later on in the show. We've got three non-political questions coming your way as well. But I quickly wanted to let you know, not that he needs my help, but uh, Mark Levin's new book debuted number one on the bestseller list um, three days before its release. It's called Unfreedom of the Press. And our colleague is calling for a reformation. And I'm a sucker when you start using language like that. Uh, Calling for a reformation in the media. And it's high time we as American citizens take up our responsibility before it's too late. I hope you've ordered your copy. If not, do it now. The book just released, but you can find it at your local bookstore or order it on Amazon.com right now. Unfreedom of the Press at Amazon.com. As we speak. And now here's Aaron with what happened while we were away. What happened while we were away brought to you by updates. Lots and lots of updates. But before we begin today, of course, is the 75th anniversary of D-Day, the bloodiest day of conventional combat in World War II with over 10,000 Allied men killed as they fought on the beaches of Normandy. Given the total number of troops deployed versus the number of bullets fired, the odds of survival for any one man were slim at best. One of those survivors, Sergeant Ray Lambert, a medic with the 1st Infantry Division, was in the first wave to hit the beach on D-Day. He told the Chicago Tribune in 2004, quote, When we got within a thousand yards of the beach, you could hear the machine gun bullets hitting off the front ramp of the boat. The ramp went down, and we were in water over our heads. Some of the men drowned. Some got hit by the bullets. The boat next to ours blew up. Some of those men caught fire. We never saw them again. When we got to the beach, I said to one of my men, Corporal Myers, if there's a hell, this has got to be it. And it was about a minute later that he got a bullet in his head. To make a long story short, only seven of the 31 men on my boat made it to the beach. The enormity of their sacrifice will hopefully not be forgotten soon. 
And now in a complete contradiction of that sentiment, here's the rest of the montage. Yesterday, I told you about a left-wing journalist's attempt to deplatform Stephen Crowder, fellow Blaze TV host, from his very large and very successful YouTube channel because Crowder made fun of this journalist. YouTube then came back to this Vox journalist by the name of Carlos Maza and told him and his friends to basically bug off. Well, apparently the guys running the show at YouTube are just a little bit skittish because mere hours later, they reversed course and announced they were suspending the monetization of Crowder's YouTube channel, quote, because a pattern of egregious actions has harmed the broader community and is against our YouTube partner program policies. Before too long, other independent creators, most with a right-leaning bent, were reporting their channels too were being demonetized without any explanation of how they broke the rules. YouTube itself later admitted Crowder hadn't broken any of their guidelines, so they just made some gobbledygook up for why they were suspending him. Why is this important? Well, for one, it just goes to show how much power big tech has over our lives. If they're willing to take away a good chunk of Steven Crowder's livelihood, a guy with a humongous platform he's developed over years of hard work, they'll have no trouble exercising that power over you if and when they get the chance. The second reason why this is important is that a number of the creators who were demonetized yesterday rely, actually rely, on the income they get from selling ads on their YouTube videos. Their entire livelihoods are at stake because one left-wing journalist from Vox, who, by the way, was recently encouraging the practice of of throwing milkshakes of people with whom he disagrees politically couldn't stand being made fun of. On the bright side, it seems a lot of people see it this way, since hashtag Vox Adpocalypse was trending number one in the United States for a good portion of yesterday evening and this morning. So, once more, with vigor. Social media platforms must be forced to decide whether they're platforms or publishers. Moving on, an update to a story I brought to you yesterday about the Dutch teenager who purportedly invoked the Netherlands' euthanasia laws to commit suicide after a long struggle with depression and PTSD. According to The Guardian, though, she was not, quote-unquote, legally euthanized. Instead, reports The Guardian, quote, after repeated recent hospital stays, during one of which she was considered so dangerously underweight she was placed in a coma to allow her to be fed intravenously, Noah decided earlier this year she wanted no further treatment. A hospital bed was set up in her parents' home, and last week she refused all food and fluids. Her parents and doctors reportedly agreed not to force-feed her. Dutch medical guidelines stipulate that if a patient withholds their consent, quote, care providers may not provide treatment, nursing, or care. Sounds like tacit euthanasia to me. An update on the death cult. A two-year-old video was reposted by the website LifeSite News yesterday, reportedly depicting two men in white lab coats playing, yes, playing, with the bodies of two aborted babies. What you're about to see is extremely disturbing. One, two, three. <laughs> there is unfortunately no word as to whether this video is 100% authentic or what country it's from, but it is all too believable. And now adventures in film reviews with leftists. Carlos Aguilar of The Rap writes of the new children's film The Secret Life of Pets 2, quote, It acts as an animated ode to heteronormativity, toxic masculinity, and patriarchal worldviews passed off as harmless plot points to entertain young audiences. Got it. A spokesman for the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee says, quote, This D-Day is a great reminder that Nazis used to be a thing Americans were united against. Thankful for the brave folks who stormed the beaches and defended our world against fascism. Yes, progressives really think you are the fascists. 
Joe Biden is in hot water over his support of the Hyde Amendment, which prohibits, wink, wink, the use of federal dollars on abortions. And finally, we really need this. Enjoy this full-blown conversation between a dad and his baby. Did you understand it, though? Yeah. No. Okay. All right. <laughs> oh, no. Not, not this one. This is, this is the grand finale of this. Okay. Yeah, that's the last one. That's what I was wondering. I don't know what they're going to do next season because they did some stuff this time. Exactly what I was thinking. And that's what happened while we were away. Aaron's montage brought to you by our friends at Zone. It'd be really weird if you kept a stoplight at your dinner table telling you when it was time to stop eating, which is why Nature Your Creator put one right there in your body, you know, because it would be kind of weird if you just walked around with something like that, right? Uh, so here's how this is supposed to work. Uh, the, it's called OEA, and it sends a signal uh, from the gut down to the brain, or up to the brain, I should say, uh, telling it, uh, hey, uh, we're done eating, we're full, move on, uh, do something else, get active. That's one of the reasons why your metabolism worked a lot better when you were younger. The problem is, or maybe for some of you, it's never really worked. For some of us, that signal isn't as strong as it needs to be. And then for others of us, it kind of gets weaker the older we get. All Riduzone wants to do is uh, just put that OEA back in your body. That's all that it is. It's just that OEA. No caffeine. It's not a stimulant, not a bunch of chemicals. Um, this is uh, about finding the natural way to help you win the battle of the bulge. So if you've tried everything else and you're still not seeing the progress you would like to see, give Riduzone a try. Uh, go to the website, riduzone.com. That's R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E, riduzone.com. Use my name, Steve, as a promo code, and they'll give you a special offer when you do. All right, riduzone.com. Yeah, I don't know your uh, update on the Netherlands teenager. Is really an update. I don't know if it, I, that clarification that sounds worse to me. Todd, your thought? I mean, I wasn't. It wasn't a medical euthanasia. The parents just decided not to feed their kid. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, I'm just like, I mean, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm where, strangely comforted now. now. now uh, ethics and philosophy were some of my favorite, um, you know, subjects. But this is where, uh, you know, the egghead academia thing this is where it uh, really blurs what the reality of the situation was there is a difference ethically speaking in an academic setting between killing and letting die and sure. so that's the distinction that but guys there's a huge difference between an octogenarian who would not be in normal health if they were re, if they were to be revived versus a 17 year old who if they were to be you know were to recover somehow or get help would be in perfectly normal health so there's really not much of a difference that this is this just seems like passive aggressive euthanasia to me Yes. Your thoughts, Todd? <laughs> well, this reminds me about you always talk about uh, any abortion uh, legislation that still ends up with, well, then you can kill the baby. Yeah. Um, we're not, what have we really done here? Now that you bring that topic up, let, let's go to the other thing uh, that I wanted to address, uh, the, or the next thing from Aaron's montage I want to address. So we talked about Joe Biden yesterday, and, and he tried to, out of, after weeks of, of visibly attempting to avoid talking issues. And, you know, there's all videos where he's hanging out in Iowa, New Hampshire, talking to old people at restaurants and pizza ranches or whatever, right? Uh, yesterday, out of nowhere, uh, or Monday out of nowhere, no, Tuesday, because today's Thursday. So Tuesday out of nowhere, he just decided to uh, hit the, uh, uh, the triathlete circuit of the woke Olympics, right? And um, Trump is killing black trannies, 
um, uh, sick uh, the government on those uh, pesky Christians, you know, like we did in the Obama years already anyway. Uh, and um, uh, what was the other one? Um, oh, there was another one too. I'm trying to remember what, what the issue was. Oh, it was Ocasio-Cortez's, uh, he played, got caught plagiarizing her Green New Deal, right? And then we we started the show wondering why would he go down that road? I mean, when he already had the wind at his back. And then towards the end of the show, new polling data came out that showed he's lost about 10 points from his initial bounce. He's down into the, the upper 20s, right? And we kind of connected the dots and we thought, eh, now it makes sense. And I, I mentioned, given you know my extensive experience working around covering for campaigns, that's the culture of how campaigns behave, regardless of ideology. They always the, the good ones always have this data before the rest of us do. And whenever you see them do something totally out of character, wait for the data to appear a day or two later that they've already gotten their hands on. And it is common for campaigns of all ideological persuasions to operate in a form of, of reactionary environment. And it's just a matter of um, how reactionary uh, the culture of that environment is. And so it starts to make sense now. He is seeing some slippage in the numbers and he feels like he's got um, to do some genuflecting, uh, especially with those debates coming up here later this month. And then yesterday evening, word came out that uh, Joe Biden said he was still a supporter of the Hyde Amendment. For those of you that don't know what this is, um, this was the previous generation of the pro-life industry and the Republic and Team GOP's. Um, it was their um, um, it, their uh, partial birth abortion ban, right? That was the great big pro-life victory. Uh, of the Bush years, the George W. Bush years, except when we, if you go and read the court opinion, Carhartt versus Gonzalez, and I'm one of the nerds who actually does things like that. Uh, when you go read the court opinion, Carhartt versus Gonzalez, it doesn't actually ban the practice. It, it just says you can't do it a certain way. And then in the actual opinion, it explains other ways that you can do it. And and you, if you ever wondered, why are we debating late-term abortions and partial birth abortions? I I thought we banned those in the George W. Bush years, right? Uh, 2004 called and wants its arguments back. We're having all these arguments because we never banned it. And so when you had people running for president or running for office that this was their big pro-life achievement, it didn't ban a single abortion. In fact, a group of pro-life activists, actually, I think it was Dr. James Dobson they went to and pointed this out to him. And he admitted, you're right, it didn't ban any abortions at all, but he still believed it was a noteworthy effort in order to raise awareness about the issue. That's possible. That's a debatable point, but it didn't accomplish what a lot of pro-life people were told it would. The Hyde Amendment is named after former Illinois Congressman Henry Hyde, who was a longtime Republican congressman and one of the early outspoken pro-life advocates in Congress. Its original intentions were good. The problem is it effectively is, has, has been a nothing burger for more than a decade now. It goes back to the 1980s. And what it did was ban federal funding of abortions in cases of rape, incest, life of the mother, and, you know, all the normal exceptions, okay? Here's why it's a nothing burger. When you're giving a half a billion dollars to the number one death merchant in the country, right out of the federal treasury— you're funding abortions. Whether you are funding them direct, it's kind of like the conversation we just had about 
euthanasia and the clarification from that story from the from the Netherlands uh, from yesterday. It, it's a passive euthanasia. Okay, so the doctors didn't actually administer a drip. They set her up in the home uh, to be a permitted to die with you know without being fed. I mean, it, it's a passive form of euthanasia. So even if you buy the argument that Planned Parenthood doesn't use that tax dollars for abortions. <laughs> Morons. Even if you buy that argument, even if you're an idiota that believes that, okay, you're still then, you're funding all the other efforts that the death, that Murder Incorporated does, which then frees up more revenue for them to come up with new and ghastly ways like we saw from the PBS documentary Frontline in your montage yesterday, Aaron, you're freeing up their revenue in other areas to come up with new and ghastly ways to kill. So you are either passively or actively funding the murder of children when you vote to fund Planned Parenthood. And so get, if you ask Planned Parenthood, if you, if you grabbed Wonder Woman's lasso of truth, and you put it, ahead, put it around the waist of the current head of Planned Parenthood, and you ask them, hey, would you rather have the, the Hyde Amendment repealed or all those federal dollars? What do you think their answer would be? The answer would be the money, guys. Especially because we've learned this from Lila Rose, sting operations. All you got to do is just go in there. And, and this can happen. This, if you've got an abortion clinic anywhere in America, just go in there and say you were raped, a victim of incest. They'll take your word for it and let you kill your kid. Because as I've pointed out to you before with these regulatory bills, who does the reporting here? The killers. The killers do. The killers report. Do the killers lie? I don't know. Go ask Kermit Gosnell from his prison cell if killers lie. Killers lie. The killers do. So what, what you're watching now is yesterday we got a look. We, on yesterday's show, we told you we've gotten a look now at where Joe Biden really believes he stands in the primary. Now, last night, you got a look of, of, of what he'll try to do in a general election if he's the nominee. And what he'll try to do in a general election is try to downturn all of the, all of the backlash that his Democratic colleagues have caused nationwide with the ghoulishness of these bills, Illinois, New York, Virginia, et cetera, and their commentary alongside. Remember when Texas tried one of these fairly mild regulatory bills about four or five years ago, and the activists went down there and they were throwing tampons and, uh, and poop bags at members of the Texas state legislature? Really only people in our you know, corners of the media market knew about it. Well, that, that behavior's gone nationwide now. Everybody's seeing it now. And it's creating this huge backlash. And so the way you can see now that Biden is going to attempt to play up against that is to say, I believe absolutely in a woman's right to choose, but I don't think the federal government should be funding abortions. While also then pointing out he has voted to fund Planned Parenthood all 40 years he's been in the U.S. Senate. He's going to hear essentially, you know, what he's going to try to do. Want a truth bomb? Ready for one? I think you're no BS. Essentially, he's going to try the same lie on white suburban women voters. He's going to try the same lie because they're, they're the ones, white suburban voters are going to decide the next election, especially the women. But, but in general, white suburban voters are going to decide the next election. 
Trump has no shot in the cities. The Democrats have no shot in rural America. All right, so this is going to be decided in the suburbs and the excerpts. Carlisle, Iowa, where you live. West Des Moines, where, where, where Aaron and I live. Those sorts of communities all over the country are going to decide who's the next president. What he's going to try and do is the same lie Team GOP has been promulgating on those kinds of voters for decades. I'm pro-life. I voted for the Hyde Amendment and to keep it there. But then don't look over here while I'm funding Planned Parenthood. So I voted to not fund abortions. I voted for the Hyde Amendment, but I'm going to fund abortions while we fund Planned Parenthood. He's going to try the, the inverse of the same argument. Hey, I, I absolutely believe in a woman's right to choose, but you shouldn't have to pay for it if you don't believe in it. While he's been all, the time, all this time then also funding Planned Parenthood. He's going to use the exact, he's going to run the same Team GOP talking points at the same voters, albeit from the opposite direction. Instead of going east to west, we're going to go west to east or vice versa. And it's been it's big baby in the pro-life industry that has let that has let Republicans get away with lying to you about this and what the Hyde Amendment really effectively does. It was effective in 1989. It hasn't been effective for 20 some odd years. But what it did do is it allowed groups like National Right to Life to slap a pro-life bumper sticker, pro-life approved bumper sticker on a whole bunch of GOP hacks that you have voted for for decades who then have given um, a Planned Parenthood an amount of money. All of the, over the course of that time, an amount of money that would bail out the entire EU twice. He's going to try the same game. And it's smart. Because it will put Trump and the Republicans in a very difficult position. Because to point out what I just did, to point out the entire fallacy of Biden's position here, his entire position is a lie. And he's getting good press from it. Alyssa Milano and a bunch of people are criticizing him. That's what he wanted. That's what he wanted. He's going to try to play both sides of the street. All right? He's going to try to, play, he's going to, try to be Uncle Joe while winning the Laugh Olympics. He's going to try. May not work. Who knows? May not work in the primary, but that's what he's going to try to do once he gets past it, if he does. And the problem that the Trump campaign is going to have navigating that talking point is... In order to properly deconstruct it, it exposes a lot of members in the Republican Party who are fake and phony pro-lifers as well, who used, after long after Henry Hyde was gone, used his amendment as a fig leaf to claim they were pro-life while they then turned around and funded Planned Parenthood all of these years. That's a fairly, I'll give Uncle Joe credit. That's a fairly sophisticated political ploy. It's smart. And it's best that you're warned about it now so you don't get caught with your knickers down in 516 days when we have a presidential election. Because that's what he's trying to do here. He's trying to lessen the blowback from suburban white women voters who are moderately to fully, tend to be moderately to fully pro-life. And certainly, in most cases, would be opposed to the funding and taxpayer public funding of the procedure or the execution. He's going to try and have it both ways. Your thoughts, gentlemen, on that? Well, we're 
right in the heart of the wisdom of Solomon right here. Uh, and with the, uh, of course, the problem is with the suggestion of uh, splitting the baby in half. We've got people on both sides of the political party that say, done share, great idea. Yes. Outstanding. Yep. Now, of course, yes, uh, it, if it, it, it might take some time to unpackage uh, this verbally, rhetorically, you need the right moment, you know, or or though, if you really are about uh, throwing away this silly and stupid game you've been playing, uh, you just have on your phone, ready to go in commercials, the dancing dead babies. Yes, that's that's how you fight all this nonsense. You say, um, all those mothers who you say are uh, largely leaning towards pro-life, but easily easily manipulated by verbiage. Look at that. Now, I do think there is. I do think there's a simple way that Trump could push back on this without getting in the weeds and without totally blowing up his own caucus, who are, who are, are majority of them are phony pro-lifers and have been all your careers. It's just votes for the Hyde Amendment have, and to, to sustain it have given them the fake pro-life credentials so Nash, groups like National Right to Life and others can just lie to you that you know these guys are pro-life or gals and they're not. Here's what I would do, Aaron, is, is I would just rise above that and say, Joe, if I were Donald Trump, and even I would, this is how I would tell him to say it and say it in a way that it sounds like something he would say. Just turn to him and say, Joe, are you for the executing of live babies that New York, Illinois, and yeah. Virginia have passed? I think that's really all Americans yeah. want to know. Get to we, it. We don't have to get. We don't have to. We don't. You know, just just Joe. Are you for the and, and use? That's the word Trump has used many times already on a national stage, including joint sessions of Congress where he's given State of the Union speeches and used that language right to their face. He should just turn when this comes up. If and when Joe, if if and when Joe is the nominee, when this comes up, he should just look at him and say, Let, "Let's just get down to brass tacks here." This so. is a Michael Dukakis question. Yes. What would you do if your bottom daughter line, was raped? Bottom line: Do you believe we should kill, execute live babies like your like your Democrat peers in New York, Virginia, and Illinois have have come out publicly and advocated, and just stay with that talking point? Yes, I, I don't really understand the double minded thinking here, and maybe that's why because it's probably double minded. How can you? How can you? Why? Why would you ever think that you would be able to get away with saying I'm in support of the Hyde Amendment as if you are pro-life or something, mm -hmm. while at the same time you know Joe Biden is not going to say oh, I think we should ban abortions or I'm not comfortable. You know he's not going to say. Or at least I don't. I maybe I don't know. Uh, I don't think Joe Biden would just come out against um, abortion uh, with any level of certainty. At least not to the same degree that Trump has vocalized in the past, as you just alluded to, I don't get this this standing because the Hyde Amendment, your support of it, is irrelevant if you're fine with babies being killed regardless because the Hyde Amendment is secondary or tertiary to the main issue here, and the main issue is abortion and the practice of abortion. When those suburban uh, women uh, who are going to be deciding the next election uh, when you say that they're pro-life, that that's that, that's a that's a top you know that's a kind of a top li line issue. They're they're not necessarily probably uh, okay. I'm pro Heidemann. No, they're they're pro-life. You, you see what I'm saying? The mm -hmm. order of magnitude here, especially, is is really weird. How can you say? How can you be pro-choice or pro-abort, and then down here say, well, but I'm against the Heidemann. I do not get that. But then again, a lot of the electorate is really low information, so maybe he just cynically thinks, I'm going to be able to make this ploy work out for me, but I just, yep. I don't understand for it. Well, you're, remind our audience, the year you were born. 93. 
he's been up on Capitol Hill two decades before you were born. He's been up there for as long as Todd and I have been alive. And, and throughout most of that era, what has been the number one hot button issue on a perennial basis throughout most of that era? Because that would be the post Roe v. Wade era. What's been the number one hot button issue? Abortion. Abortion has been. And how has he watched a lot of his Republican colleagues, many of whom he is chummier with, and they like, and, and many of his Republican colleagues that have served with him up there for how many years, like the Joe Bidens of the world more than they like people like us. That's the truth, too. And how has he watched them pat people like us on the head? How has he watched them patronize us? Yeah. How, what, what cynical ploy, to use your words, has he, you, has he watched Republicans do to, set, to, to, walk, to settle down the, uh, the children acting out in the base? Well, I voted for the Heidemann I'm, I'm against federal funding for abortions. While they go over there and vote to, plan, vote to fund Planned Parenthood year after year after year after year. Even their recent defund efforts have been fake because they, they have made it a singular bill to defund Planned Parenthood and not part of the overall budget because they don't, we can't have a government shutdown. We always lose. So we, we, we fund all the baby killers because the government can't shut down. So he has, he has watched Republicans do this successfully to their base for decades. It makes total sense when you stop and think. And when you, when you start connecting the dots again, it makes total sense that he'd give it a shot on his base when he has seen so many of his chummy Republican friends use it successfully on us. You, fight, you claim to fight the culture war the entire time. You're really not. Three non-political questions are next here. Stay tuned. You know, we often like to uh, deride uh, leftists' favorite Bible verse is Matthew 7, taken totally out of context, judge not, lest ye be judged. And the way they take it out of context all but actually fulfills um, its actual context by pointing out what Jesus <laughs> really meant, <laughs> right? You, when, when I was, I've been a conservative long before I was a, a Christian. And if, if you talk to most uh, generically religious or secular conservatives and ask them, hey, what's your favorite, favorite Bible verse? You know what they'd often tell you? The Lord helps those who help themselves, right? You know that's actually not in the Bible. It's not. But there are some, uh, some nuggets and pearls of wisdom in there, like, you know, to be a good steward. Uh, your body is a temple. Uh, be a good steward of the resources that God has given you. And this is where our friends at Brickhouse Nutrition come in. Uh, they have created uh, a fantastic product for those of you lamenting, why am I taking so many supplements? You know, one of the reasons why is a lot of the food we eat today has been stripped of the nutrients and, uh, and the vitamins and the minerals that uh, our creator put in those things in order to make us healthier. Well, we've stripped a lot of those things out there so we can mass produce this food and it can stay fresher, quote unquote, longer. That's where Brickhouse Nutrition's Field of Greens comes in. Uh, it's real USDA, organic fruits and vegetables, complete with antioxidants, boosts immunity, um, has that prebiotic, probiotics, all those things that are missing from a lot of our diets today. Field of Greens wants to put it right back in there and it tastes great as well. You can give it a shot. Uh, just mix it with any water-based drink and you've got a serving of fruits and vegetables right there, okay? And it's it's not a supplement. That's why when you turn over the label, it says nutrition facts. It's the actual food. And you can save 15% off of your first order right now when you go to BrickHouseSteve.com. That's BrickHouseSteve.com. 
I want to make one more point on Biden here. Um, in the 1990s, with the Clinton presidency, we saw him and Dick Morris fashioned a new political term. You used it the other day, Todd, triangulation. And what happened early in the Clinton presidency is he ran as a moderate, got elected, and then immediately tried to govern as a leftist. Hillary Care, tax increases, Brady bills. Gays in the military. Gays in the military. Um, was, uh, the, the, the stimulus packages, right? I still can remember listening to all those episodes of Rush Limbaugh every day in that era talking about what was going on at that time. And then the 1994 midterms came along and he got walloped. So he brought in his old Arkansas political advisor who had helped him because Bill, this is a, this was a pattern with Bill Clinton. He had gotten elected in a conservative Southern state, promising to be a moderate Southern Democrat, got elected, started governing, you know, like a guy who dodged the draft and went to Moscow instead, which he did. Uh, he started governing like that, got kicked out of office. He brought in an Arkansas buddy by the name of Dick Morris to help him get resurrect his political career. And he followed the same trail again. All right. So he gets elected with, you know, him, him and Al Gore. Al Gore in 1984, when he ran for president the first time, was a pro-life Democrat. With a divinity degree from Vanderbilt. And that was, you know, he was going to show they weren't Michael Dukakis with two white Southern moderate Democrats on the ticket together. And it, and it won. But then they got elected and went hard left. 1994 midterms come around and you had the Republican revolution. And for the first time since the Eisenhower years, there was a Republican speaker of the house. And suddenly Bill Clinton's given, brings his, his buddy Dick Morris back. Hey, save me here. Otherwise I'm doomed in, in the 96th reelect. And so they, they tried this strategy of triangulation. And the triangulation strategy was essentially they would, they would pit themselves as the, as the moderate buffer between how right-wing the Republicans are and how left-wing the Democratic base is. And they would triangulate off of those two and be seen as Main Street. And suddenly Bill Clinton's giving speeches, a State of the Union address, the era of big government is over. He said those words, remember that? Yeah. Said those words in the State of the Union address after the, I think it was the 1994 midterms. Uh, we got welfare reform. Basically, Bill Clinton signed into law the welfare reform that every Republican president had tried to do for 30 years, but would get called every name in the book if they, if they did it, so they couldn't. He did it. The, the, the crime bill that Donald Trump was criticizing last week, I think it's one of the best bipartisan bills that's come out of Washington, which admit is a low bar because there haven't been many, but it's one of the best. The whole three strikes and you're out, cracking down on violent criminals. Um, uh, the DOMA Act, the Defense of Marriage Act, he signed that into law. All right. And so on and on and on, he's taking the GOP's issues off the table. But they're, and, and, and in doing so, he is, he's betraying numerous core Democratic constituencies. But he's gambling on the notion that you may not like me moving to the middle, but you, you'll take me in the See, middle over the, where the, how far right the Republicans have gone. Now that's from the Republican, Patrick. Where else are you going to go? Yes, he did this. And, but he understood, though, there was one shibboleth he could not step on. And throughout all of this time, as he's out there turning, turning his back on core Democratic constituencies, the death cult got everything it wanted from Bill Clinton. He never, ever turned his back on them. And he realized... This is the number one sacrament in my party. 
and this is how I'll get the feminists to stick with me while I've got sexual harassment and I'm, I'm, I'm a predator on interns in my office, is they'll stick with me because you know what their number one sacrament is too? It ain't feminism. It's killing babies. That's what it is. They call it feminism, but it's really just, I just want to kill something I don't want to have to take care of. That's really what it is. And so he honored this constituency at every turn. And, that, and then he, and he triangu- triangulated off the Republicans to say, you guys want to get rid of Roe v. Wade and abortion. You don't care about women, says the guy who is creeping on a 19-year-old intern from the power base of the Oval Office, who clearly obviously cares, right? Okay? This was the triangulation st- strategy that got Bill Clinton reelected and was probably the last smart thing Dick Morris ever came up with 20 years ago. I think we're, I wonder if we're seeing Joe Biden do the reverse of this. Because, by the way, where was Joe Biden the whole time this was happening? Uh, in the U.S. Senate, <laughs> right? Where he's been for Evs, okay? I think, I, I wonder if what we saw yesterday, if you put these two events together, I'm for the Hyde Amendment, which is a fake amendment, as I just pointed out. But I'm going to go do the uh, woke laugh Olympics on every other issue. I wonder if he's doing the inverse of what Bill Clinton did. And he is seeing right now that for the first time in his political career, his party is on the defensive on the life issue nationwide. And in the conversation, in the debate, in the argument, every platform, they're on the, de- they're on the defense. It used to be when, when, when industries threatened to pull out, just a few years ago, we stopped protecting religious liberty in numerous states because corporations were threatening to pull out of states. Remember that? That was just 2013, 2014, 2015. Indiana, Arkansas, Arizona, numerous states. Now states are now they're threatening to pull out of Georgia for abortions, and the governor there is like, last one out, turn out the lights. <laughs> see, see on the flip side, I guess someone else will take all those tax credits then have a nice life. He's never seen his party on the defensive on this issue. And he can see that they I wonder if he can see they're so far extreme being defined extreme on this, he's gonna lose those white suburban women. So I wonder if, we're, if what we saw yesterday, if you start again connecting dots, if we're watching Joe Biden attempt the inverse of Bill Clinton's triangulation strategy, which is abortion's a dead issue, pun intended. They've, they have lost this issue, guys. They have lost it. I firmly believe they've lost it. It doesn't mean the war is over, but they have lo- all their talking points are gone. The, all, of the, all of their phraseologies that I wrote about for the Blaze last week, every, every spell they used to cast linguistically has all been, it's all defeated now. All they've got left is the video Aaron had last week of that old woman just dropping F-bombs in the face of young pro-life girls. Or that, that bully in, 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 uh, in, in, in Pennsylvania. That's all they have left now. And whenever an argument, whenever those advocating an argument, whenever they devolve to that level, they've lost. The argument has been lost. It doesn't mean it's over. Over doesn't mean lost. All right. If there's a story, there's a story from the War of 1812 that the Battle of Orleans, Andrew Jackson's great victory in the War of 1812, that propelled him to national stature, actually took place long after the war was actually over. War, war just hadn't made its way down to, to Louisiana yet. So it doesn't mean that that the it's over, but they've lost. And I wonder if you're watching Uncle Joe say that's that that's a dead letter, man. And what are they going to do? Vote for the ban all abortions and overturn Roe versus Wade party? So I'm going to take that issue off the table right now, and I'm going to do the inverse of what I saw Bill Clinton do in the 90s. I'm going to give, I'm going to give up on that issue. I'm going to give up the ground on that issue. 
I'm not going to fight on it. But I am going to move to the left on every other issue. The environment, every, you know, you know, trans madness, everything else. I'll do the opposite of what Bill Clinton did, where he moved right on every issue but abortion. I will move left on every issue but abortion. Quick thought on that, Todd. Well, um, and he's clearly willing to do this while boldface lying about it. Um, and he'll be able to get that out to the right people, like he's lied about his whole life. I'm a Catholic. He no doubt was behind Barack of telling Barack Obama to lie about uh, uh, being pro-traditional uh, marriage. Um, and look, uh, Obama did it about face. And this is why I tweeted out months ago why, while Roll Tide evangelicalism was the thing that uh, turned the tide for Donald Trump, my great worry is that this kind of if if he pulls it off, it's because he's going to pull off this kind of lie against my tribe, the Catholics. I want to push back a little bit. If this is their chief sacrament, how would their base ever let him get away with this? Well, uh, that, they may not. That's they what I mean not, about they, the lie. They, They're going to have to they, wink and nod. Yes, it, they they may not. Ultimately, he he'll, he may look at them and say, you know what? I guess you want Donald Trump appointing uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's successor then, don't you? Oh, it's a huge gamble. I it, mean, it is a huge gamble. Yeah, I agree. I agree. But it it it's it's either that or just total randomness. And I don't think a guy stays in power and in the in the public eye and survives the career up and downs the way Joe Biden has with just mere randomness. Okay, well, he's absolutely right about so the Catholic vote is that fickle. He can dupe them with this garbage now. Especially hey, today today we had the Archbishop of Illinois. I think I read. Yeah. So we're going to start denying communion now oh. after what his state did last week. See, I could see a guy Please. like Joe Biden, who's a political survivor, looking at those tea leaves and saying, guys, this is a dead oh, issue. That's a game changer. If that's really happening across the nation, game changer. All right, Aaron, let's get to three non-political questions. We all have questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Who am I? A search and a question of identity. Why am I here? A question of meaning and purpose. Where am I going? Question of destiny. Some better than others. What sort of morality or proto-morality would you expect to find in a chimpanzee troop? Injecting some levity into the demise of Western civilization. It's three questions on The Steve Day Show. Because we need a little uh, break from the continued decline of Western civilization, it is three questions, non-political questions. First question, the NCAA announced yesterday they are moving the three-point line in college basketball back over a foot to the international distance. What are two examples of other things in other sports that need to be made more difficult? That's a really good question. And it came too late for your boy Ethan Happ. Boy, if they had cleared out more space for him. Uh, with the moving of that three-point line, he'd have been even more devastatingly effective with more room to operate down low. But um, um, I, in, in any two rule things in sports, they need to be made more difficult. Two right? things that need to just be made more. It can be a rule. It can be uh, something like this where the, the, the lines are changed somehow or the parameters are changed somehow. Anything that makes the game more difficult. Okay. Um, I would, I'd make extra points even longer than they are right now. Uh, in the NFL, or at the very least, I'd have colleges move the extra point line to where it is in the NFL now, where it's about what, like a 35 yard field goal or something like that. So it's a, it's, it's actually a thing. The other thing I would do is, um, uh, I'd move. I love the college overtime setup. I love it, but I, I'd start, I'd move it the yard line back to like the 40 yard line instead of the 25. 
because if, starting at the 25, if you go three and out, provided you don't lose a whole bunch of yardage, you still have a chance in that possession to put points on the board with a field goal, right? You put it at the 40-yard line, you've at least got to get some movement. You've got to probably get almost a first down for most college kickers. You know, usually you got to be 45 yards in for most college kickers. So I, those are those are two things off the top of my head that I would do. I'm not sure. Sh- I'm fascinated by this one. I'm not sure about it, but I think it's worthy of discussion. The possibility in college basketball of no timeouts in the last two minutes of play. Hmm. The notion that it just, and listen, it's still great and we have had unbelievable finishes, but just the notion that that it ends up taking so long and you just let, hey, now is the time the players play. Um, Also, and here, listen, people, you know, I, I can't get my wife to figure out why they foul at the end of basketball games. Well, that, but they keep giving her points. I'm like, honey, but if they don't do that, the clock yeah. runs out. We have this argument every March Madness. That's unavoidable. <laughs> I don't know what you do about that. But listen, remember, I am a prophet of this, uh, uh, from the church of uh, no instant replay. Um, but instant replay, what it's called, VAR in soccer, uh, th- that must be there to make uh, both uh, flopping far less viable and some of the heinous, heinous fouls that are committed that actually cause some of the flopping uh, to perhaps be uh, uh, more uh, accurately viewed and penalized accordingly. Uh, that is the one sport where I will tolerate instant replay. All right, question two. Uh, okay, uh, let's see. Is there any scenario in which Snoke comes back for Star Wars Episode Nine? And if so, does that add to the plot or not necessarily? Uh, I think, and I've, I've maintained this all along since J.J. Abrams came in, some further clarification of who Snoke is and where he came from will absolutely be a part of the story of Star, Star Wars 9. And a lot of Ryan Johnson's postmodern, it, nothing means anything, is going to get retconned, and I think that's a part of it. It absolutely should be that in there to salvage this, yeah. uh, but it's st- but that might just be like baseline checking the box. I, I, I don't think... Based on what they've done, they can make it edifying. They might just have to do it to make it like reasonable. I think if he comes back, um, I, as much as I liked Snoke as a villain, uh, I think the way that they'd have to do it would be just so ham-fisted and so contrived, it would probably detract from the story. Final question, what's one food, if you were forced to eat it for the rest of your life, every meal for the rest of your life, that you would be totally fine with eating? I'm going to say, even though it's not my favorite food, that would be warm, gooey chocolate chip cookies right out of the oven. Um, I'm going to say uh, it would be pizza. And the reason why is because you can alternate the toppings. And, and you could, you, if you do it, depending on what you put on there, you essentially can make it that all four of the necessary food groups, you touch them all, and you could actually sustain nutrition. Um, candy, on that. candy canes, candy corns. <laughs> well, a little bit more nutrition than that, I think. So I'm going to say pizza. But we don't have to take health concerns in at all. No. I mean, I know you said no. nutrition, I, but that I, I should have added regardless of health concerns. Oh, well, okay. Then I'm going to go with warm, chewy, gooey chocolate chip cookies right gotcha. out of the oven. Gotcha. Sorry. <laughs> wow. Uh, man, I'm trying to, th- I think I could get sick of things I love. Uh, you might. I think I breakfast might, cereal would be up there too. If there's no health concerns, I think that I think I might go with like French fries. I don't think I could ever get sick of salty potatoes under any circumstances. That's where you and I are different, and I love French fries. You, it, I, we are we are opposite there. Where you like sweets, but you love the savory. I love it, 
Uh, I like savory but love the sweets, yeah. so we're a little inverse. I there. would do the loaded baked potato salad from Costco. That that stuff, is your jam, man. That is. Can you bring some amazing. in? I, I will sometime if we have a late taping or something that we need to eat. Yeah, I'll bring some in sometime. So yesterday, Daniel Horowitz told us the latest dealings of what's really going on at the border. But how did we get here? We'll discuss that when we come back here for the top of hour two, live and on demand on The Blaze. Stay tuned. And we're back with our number two here live and on demand on The Blaze. 888-900-3393 is the number to The Steve Dace Show. You can also let us know what you think about what we think via the stevedace.com inbox. Email us, steve at stevedace.com. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. I don't know about your neighborhood, but uh, a lot more real estate yard signs are going up now that uh, spring and summer are here. If you are thinking of entering into the real estate market, uh, take my word for it, uh, having done it a few times myself, you definitely need to find a real estate agent that you can trust. Uh, This is a company, Real Estate Agents I Trust, that Glenn Beck and his associates started a few years ago because they too, like so many others, ran into real estate agents who talked a good game, but then when needed, couldn't deliver the promised results. So they wanted to start their own vetting referral service for agents, agents that are vetted on three criteria. Do they, A, have a a track record of successfully navigating the real estate market? B, do they understand the data, but also look beyond the data and the algorithms uh, for the outliers? Uh, Do they spare the details? And then C, are they personable? I mean, this is a really stressful and personable relational process. If you don't have a rapport with somebody, if you don't trust them to return phone calls, things of that nature, um, the odds that this is going to be successful go even lower. All right. So if you want to find a real estate agent that you can trust, simply go to the website, realestateagentsitrust.com. That's realestateagentsitrust.com. So yesterday we had our weekly prophet of woe and lamentation, Daniel Horowitz on the program, giving us the latest details of what's been going on at the border. Uh, I want us to, though, take a look at the history of the, of the Mexican border, the southern border, and see what we can learn there about uh, any, any possibilities for there to be a future where our sovereignty is restated, uh, reinstated and protected. John Daniel Davidson is a senior correspondent for The Federalist. He recently wrote about this as well for the Texas Public Policy Foundation, where he's a senior fellow there, too. And it's good to have you on the show today, John. Thanks for joining us here at the border. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Uh, I, I want to get into the history here more than the politics of it. But but since you're in Texas, I need I want to ask you a local question, if you don't mind. One of the things Daniel brought up here that I found interesting yesterday uh, is the lack of at least what we're seeing outside of Texas. Now, maybe in Texas, you're seeing more. But outside of Texas, except for your former colleague there at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, Chip Roy, who's now a member of Congress, there have not I've not seen a lot said by John Cornyn, Ted Cruz. I went and looked at your governor, Greg Abbott's Twitter feed yesterday. He's had like one thing to say about it since May 30th. So we're being told nationally that this is an absolute crisis. And yet some of your politicians don't seem to be behaving as if that's the case. Are we being misled here outside of the state? Is it really as bad as we're being told that it is, John? Oh, yes, indeed. It's as bad as you're being told. Uh, in some ways, it's worse than you're being told. Um, 
it's hard to keep up with all the news at the border, honestly. I, I follow it pretty closely, and I go down there pretty regularly to the border. Um, Thankfully, national news has started to pick up the slack. Some of the major media organizations have some pretty good reporters on the border uh, that keep up to speed on what's going on. But the sheer volume of news and uh, disturbing stories about what's going on at the border, what goes on there every day, doesn't actually make it into the news cycle very often. I can't speak for why Texas politicians aren't talking more about this. Uh, you mentioned Chip Roy, another uh, good member of Congress who's talked about this a lot from Texas, is Dan Crenshaw, mm -hmm. and he's been outspoken along with Chip Roy about this. But uh, I, I don't know how to explain it. Maybe there's a sense of uh, futility that the Democrats uh, have, have shown themselves unwilling to work with Republicans on this. Um, I, I'm not sure what the, what the reason is. Uh, but no one's being misled. The, the stories that you hear that surprise and shock you are true. And there's actually many more of them on a daily and weekly basis than get into the news. All right, let's go back and let's take a look at the, what the history tells us here um, uh, about how secure that border has been historically. Uh, if there are historians in our audience, they might recall something called the Zimmerman note uh, from a, from previous eras where there was attempts uh, by the Germans to use the border as a way, as maybe a pathway to infiltrate uh, or eventually attack America, things of that nature. So some of these debates aren't new, but the, but the volume uh, at which we're now seeing this debate exploited is new. So take us back to what the history tells us about how realistic is this border? Is it for us to have this border secure, John? Yeah, it's a really long and fascinating history. And the reality is that the border has never really been secure all the way back to the Texas Revolution in 1836. After Texas won its independence from Mexico, Mexico never recognized the Rio Grande as mm -hmm. the southern border. Uh, and it wasn't until they lost the Mexican-American War in 1848 that they recognized the Rio Grande as the southern border of Texas with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. So the border, and you, you mentioned the World War I uh, Zimmerman telegram uh, situation as well. Uh, the border's never really been secure. And it's, it's often been a place of lawlessness. It's often been indifferently governed on both sides of the border. Uh, and, and sometimes it has become a place of, of violence and chaos as well. Uh, why? Why is that? I mean, in this era, we know why. Republicans and their corporatist donors want cheap labor. Democrats are trolling for new voters. That's a, that's a very basic answer as to what, what yeah. the politically expedient reason is. It's a sieve in 2018. Why is why why was that a case in 1918, 1938, 1958? Why? A lot of the reason historically has had to do with the political instability of Mexico. Uh, in 1911, when the Mexican Revolution broke out, you know, for a decade, Mexico was plunged into chaos, terrible violence, uh, uh, political instability all throughout the country, and eventually the political instability, and this is one of the big lessons uh, of the history of the border when it comes to border security, eventually political instability in Mexico bleeds across the border into the United States. In 1916, that took the form of Pancho Villa uh, and his men raiding Columbus, New, New Mexico, killing 18 Americans, 
burning the town and and then moving back across into Mexico. And and that triggered the the punitive expedition. Woodrow Wilson ordered General Pershing into Mexico. U.S. forces occupied a part of Mexico for almost a year. Uh, but but that's really been the pattern. Political instability in Mexico breeds chaos on the border, and eventually it crosses the border. So there really is, even on this issue, then, John, nothing new under the sun. Let me give you a, a hypothetical of an extreme situation. You tell me how realistic it is, because we, we can, on one hand, in order to wink and nod to get, you know, as much cheap migrant labor across the border, um, we can act, we can we can behave as if the border is not secure, while at the same time, when we view extremist threats coming across it, we have the we have we have the the infrastructure in place to recognize those and act. So how realistic then is it that an Islamist insurgent, you know, we, we, we have seen since, um, you know, we're seeing that this has become an amorphous thing like San Fernando Valley shooting, for example. OK, um, an Islamist insurgent comes across the border. Uh, you know, and, and with an EMP or you, you, you know, uh, airborne uranium to contaminate, you know, a southern Texas town or something of that nature. How realistic is it that they could exploit what we are economically looking the other way at? That they could exploit that, or would those sorts of threats be triggered by the security that we have there? Uh, it is realistic that they could exploit it. Uh, the check on that sort of thing is not what a lot of people uh, would think it would be. Uh, and, and that is that the cartel organizations that control much of northern Mexico and control the routes across the border uh, are, in, are in a business. They, they make a lot of money trafficking narcotics. They make a lot of money trafficking migrants, uh, honestly. Uh, and w the last thing that they want is an international incident on the border, a 9-11 type of a situation that's going to, to trigger a U.S. intervention or uh, some sort of a joint action by Mexico and the United States on the border that, that really does uh, shut down the border and, and militarize it in a hard way. Um, so, so the check on some sort of a terrorist thing, I think, uh, in many cases, is is cartels who want business to keep running. They want the product. I mean, you know, the the industry, the black market industry, not only in labor but for narcotics, is huge on the border. And I think that's something that a lot of Americans don't quite realize: billions and billions of dollars a year just for smuggling migrants right now, mm -hmm. to say nothing of drugs. And for folks to think that's fantastical, there's actually historical precedent for what you just cited. I mean, we had American mafiosos assist us in World War II, recognizing all of their black markets and everything else. I mean, Lucky Luciano is the most famous example, uh, realizing that if the Nazis and Japanese won, all those black markets they get to profit off of, uh, you know, we're all going to go away. So there is a, a primal instinct where the almighty uh, dollar comes into play. Does that then, do you think, John, play into why the Trump administration is resisting calls from congressmen like your Chip Roy to define the drug cartels as a terrorist organization? Is, do you think that's why they're resisting that? Because they see them as a check and balance against this becoming a, 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 ab, an absolute national security threat? I, I don't know if that's the reason why they're resisting those calls or not, or if it's just a, a matter of uh, sort of political torpor uh, and difficulty 
in, in actually pulling that off, given, given the democratic control of the House. Um, it, it's also somewhat of a risky proposition uh, because these cartels are much more amorphous and ill-defined, I think, than uh, ideologically driven terrorist organizations. These are literally multinational criminal enterprises uh, that have their hands in a lot of things. Criminality in Mexico has exploded in recent years, uh, not just in drug uh, drug dealing or drug trafficking, but in you know theft of fuel, uh, you know industrial like theft of fishing rights off the coast. Uh, kidnapping and extortion have become huge, uh, and and it involves government at all levels of Mexican society. When when they had elections in Mexico last year, the number of candidates who were assassinated was staggering, and yeah. it hardly made a blip in the U.S. news. We're talking about s states that are in various states of of civil decay, and in the cases of Central American Northern Triangle countries, collapse. Hmm. So if if you had an audience with the White House, what would you tell them to do right now, John, based on your knowledge of the situation presently, but the historical context that's important to know as well? So you're not a reactionary. So we're not just overreacting at every human crisis or one corrupt regime. That's where the benefit of history comes in, right? The, the long, uh, you know, the, the long view. You've got them both. If you had an audience with the president and his advisors, what would you tell them right now? I would tell them that stability in Mexico and Central America is the key to controlling the border in the long term, that there's no solution to the migrant crisis that doesn't contemplate uh, the pull factors that cause people to leave their homes, sell everything they have, risk everything to come into the United States. If we can keep those people in their country, that's the long-term solution to the border crisis. And, and that's what we've seen historically in Mexico. As the Mexican economy has grown, uh, we've seen the number of people crossing into the United States from Mexico for work uh, reduced. That, that slows down. When the U.S. economy contracts in times of recession, the number of people coming from Mexico dramatically drops. Uh, I would say, you know, there was a report in the Washington Post the other day that the Department of Homeland Security sent 80 advisors uh, agents and investigators to Guatemala to assist law enforcement people in Guatemala in tracking down and shutting down smuggling networks in that country. I would say that's a great first step, and we need to extend that to Honduras, El Salvador, and Mexico. That same report contained uh, um, a statement from a Democratic member of Congress, whose name I forget, that uh, the government of Guatemala, that shares a 700-mile border with Mexico, um, is open to having U.S. troops deploy along that, that Mexican-Guatemalan border and helping them to secure that incredibly porous, unsecured border. I think we need to take invitations like that seriously as well uh, and, and really think about extending American power, influence, and uh, you know-how, know uh, both in our law enforcement and in our military capabilities, into these countries in key uh, uh, cooperative ways to help them secure their borders, to help them get a handle on corruption, to help them get a handle on crime, uh, and, and really stabilize these countries. That may sound like uh, nation building to some people, but for my money, if we're going to spend hundreds of billions of dollars over decades to nation build, let's do it in Mexico and Central America and not in Afghanistan. Let's do it where it actually will contribute to a peaceful and secure border. Those arguments, John, that you mentioned, because you are a historian, you'll remember this. A quarter century ago, President Clinton and Republicans in Congress used those arguments for NAFTA. 
And and the way Bill Clinton uh, triangulated against his Democrat base that thought uh, that we, we were going to you know ship a whole bunch of American jobs south, uh, he triangulated that with the with the explanation that this will encourage Mexico to finally build a middle class, so they'll stop sending floods of migrants across the border that compete with Americans for 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 uh, you know low skilled or unskilled jobs, drive down wages, etc. That was the argument that was made, and you know Republicans were for it because they traditionally have been the the, the free trade party. I mean, if the fact we're having this conversation 25 years later indicates that that, don't, that arrangement didn't work out the way we had we had hoped or planned, right? Well, I, I don't know if I would agree with that. I think NAFTA did work. It took a while to work, but it certainly worked in Texas. Vast swaths of South Texas had, were pulled up out of endemic generational poverty because okay. of NAFTA. The benefits of NAFTA for the United States have been unevenly distributed. That's, that's certainly true. Um, but, but, uh, as a Texan, uh, <laughs> I have to say that it has been successful. The other thing I would say about NAFTA is that over time it has helped to build a middle class in Mexico, which is why when we have recessions like the dot-com bubble bursting or the financial crash of 2008, when we recover from those things now, you know, migration from Mexico, people looking for work in Mexico tends to drop when we have a recession in the United States because there's there's not as many jobs here. But what we've seen over the course of the 2000s and after is that as we recover from those recessions, the numbers of people coming from Mexico to find work didn't shoot back up to levels where they were before. Part of the reason for that is the growth of the U.S., uh, the, gro the growth of the Mexican economy, the growth of the middle class there. Uh, you know, the fact is most people would rather stay in their own country than sell everything they have, risk everything they have uh, to travel a, a dangerous route to come to a new country. Uh, that's something people do when they feel they don't have very many other options left. Uh, but to a large degree, I would make the argument that NAFTA works, that we should we should keep NAFTA or the, uh, or its successor agreement um, and, and that we should build on it. So so final. Well, two more questions quickly. How much of this issue is a matter of of know how and how much of it is a matter of will? You understand what I'm asking? Sure. I think it's both. Uh, I, but I think the know-how is there. I think a lot of people know what we might be able to do if we had the political will. You know, it's a big, complicated problem. So uh, obviously, Congress and Washington are not well suited to deal with big, complicated problems in this era. I had noticed uh, that. I, I had noticed that. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> but look, there are things that we could do. Uh, you know, and I think the administration has has made valiant efforts to try to do as much as it as it can on its own. Um, but Congress does need to act on a whole range of fronts. The immigration system we have dates from essentially 1965. Uh, the asylum system we have dates from the Cold War. These things need to be updated mm -hmm. for the 21st century. They need to be updated to serve uh, the American economy and American communities. And what benefits the American economy and the American people the most is what we should base these things on. Uh, not some outdated notions, uh, not some idea of family reunification for the basis of immigration. Uh, we need to move past that. It's long past time to do that. And what we need most in order to do that, as you mentioned, is political will. All right, so final question. I'm going to go way off the board and ask a crazy question, okay? Okay. And I'm going to ask it in response to what you articulated as what are the long-term solutions here? Because you even used the term, the, the nation-building term. Um, and 
we're, we're, what you're really talking about is um, there needs to be a husbandry relationship here between the United States and Mexico, a, a, a parentage almost, where we need to take this country under our wing um, because they clearly cannot govern themselves. That, that's basically what I'm hearing you say, right? So why not just annex Mexico? <laughs> I mean, why, why ask the American people to, I mean, they've got, we're in a demographic winner here. We've aborted so many of our kids, 60 million of them. That's that. And that's one of the arguments why we're told we need all this unskilled workers. We don't have enough. They've got all kinds of natural resources. What about 13 to 14% of the American voting public is already Hispanic. There's a much more of a common cultural uh, parlance there than whatever the hell Afghanistan has been for 2000 years. So if, if, if you're, if we're going to ask the American people to take up all to assume all the risk, why not say then? Why not just go all the way with it then and get some benefit from the process as well? Uh, well, I think we get a lot of benefit from the from the process of making Mexico prosperous and stable, or helping them to be prosperous and stable. Look, NAFTA, as I said, has benefited uh, the United States unevenly. Uh, it's true, but it has been a net benefit. Uh, you know, the, the main answer to your question is I don't think Mexico wants to be annexed. Uh, but well, I don't we don't we don't we necessary. don't want 30% of their population either. So we can't always get the as, as Trump likes to play at his rallies. We can't always get what we want, John. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. I don't think we need to annex Mexico or Honduras or El Salvador uh, or Guatemala to have a peaceful and secure border. I think we prosper when our neighbors prosper and uh, we can help them prosper and we can help get a handle on some of these black market industries that are hurting our country, that are hurting their country. Uh, and we need to find the political will to do it and find the, the language to persuade uh, our, uh, you know, friends who are maybe uh, opposed to doing anything for their own reasons to really get on board and tackle this problem. It's not an unsolvable problem. Uh, and, and I think that, uh, uh, that the solutions are going to become very clear as the problem worsens, which it will. Great conversation, uh, John Daniel Davidson from the Texas Public Policy Foundation and the Federalist. Thanks for joining us today, John. Real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Good yeah, stuff. Thank you. Oh, boy. Um, we got uh, some stuff to talk about there. Um, it, something else to warn you about as well is the former FBI director of cybercrimes was on 60 Minutes recently. Warning homeowners that foreign and domestic thieves can steal your home. Here's why. Most of our mortgages and home titles are kept online where those databases can be hacked by scammers. If you've got equity in your home, here's how they get to it. They forge their name onto your home's title uh, once they've hacked that database and then they start taking loans out using your home's equity as collateral and then they stick you with the payments, the, the late notices, the foreclosures, the evictions, et cetera. Uh, your mortgage lender can't protect you. Your identity theft protector can't do it either. But for pennies a day, our friends at Home Title Lock will. Um, they will put a virtual barrier around your home's title. If they detect anything nefarious happening whatsoever, they will pounce. and Like, uh, pounce. Even more than Republicans are accused of pouncing in the media, they will pounce on it to protect the most valuable investment most Americans will ever have. And you can find out right now if your home's title has already been tampered with uh, for free. Uh, just register for a free title scan and report at hometitlelock.com. That's hometitlelock.com. All right. 
Men, some thoughts on the conversation we just had with John Daniel Davidson. What do you think? Well, I like some of these questions that you're answering. I know what happens on the overtime stays on the overtime, but there was a question you asked yesterday on the overtime. If you want to know what that question was, you'll have to go uh, and uh, go and subscribe to Blaze TV on the uh, Steve Day show, show page. There was that question, and there was like, you know, should we uh, invade Mexico? That, you know, those are always fun. Qu- or annex Me- Mexico. What, what happened? Invade's a dirty word. It, it, it is, yeah. I mean, Vladimir Putin called and said the pay, PR he got from using the word invade when it was, uh, you know, the Crimea Peninsula, you know, it was bad. No, that's really, if you're not prepared to answer what sounds like the absurd questions, then you're never going to be able to answer, I don't think, the simple ones. Right, and then, here's why I asked that. His, so, he knows. He told me what the solution is. It involves a lot of husbandry. It involves a lot of disciple Hand-holding. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if we're going to do all of that, man, then why not ask the American people to get some of the residual benefits off? I mean, they got, they got oil there. They got all kinds of natural resources there. They don't know what the hell they're doing, obviously. They, you can't even run for office in the country without getting assassinated, apparently. Yeah, because uh, the, the other argument that I've heard against, against building and truly securing our border, and I've heard this argument from a, a, legit, a couple of legitimate people, is that things are so bad in, in Mexico and, and the government and the social structure is so bad in Mexico because of the corruption, because of the cartels, because of uh, just the lack of foundation, uh, foundational uh, societal building blocks that you need to have to actually have a functioning culture and functioning country. Things are so bad that if we really, truly did secure our border to where nobody was really, no, really nobody was getting in illegally, it would essentially become like a boiling pot. And what happens with cultures and societies that do not have a, 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 a foundation uh, to, by which to work on that are really just driven by pure, uh, you know, pr- pure survival instinct yeah. and instinct? Usually not good things come of that. I mean, usually it's not a good form of government and we don't want that on our front doorstep. So maybe that's another argument for annexation as well. But what, what, what is really striking again is that we, and I, I think this every time we talk to Daniel and in that conversation as well, we deserve what's coming to us because we've had the solutions. He said it himself. We know that we, we know that we have the know-how to be able to actually secure our border in an effective way. We just lack the will. And whenever we lack the will, we deserve whatever is coming to you. Because when you remain ambivalent, something will come to you. And when you have the power to stop it, stop it, and you didn't, you kind of deserve what's coming. What do you think, Todd? Yeah, I, when you listen to a smart and thoughtful guy like that, and he says these problems are solvable, uh, I, I, I believe him. But it's this is riffing off Aaron's point a little bit, but they're only solvable when people come to the table in either good faith or the realization uh, amongst thieves, like you said with Lucky Luciano, that, mm-hmm. uh, oh, the, 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 the status quo is uh, not the status quo anymore. You, you, we have in this discussion, we have no grants and we have no Shermans. The ones who find the right general and then they burn uh, Atlanta uh, to the ground because they are going to change the conversation. And as long as we continue to talk in terms that fundamentally allow millions to slip through the cracks over and over again, that's never going to change. So um, we, 
That's why I asked them, is it a question of know-how or yeah. is it a question of will? It is absolutely, yeah. It's absolutely a question of will. It's absolutely a question of doing things like uh, not declaring a national emergency and then behaving like it isn't one. You don't think that's a good idea? It's a terrible idea. Yeah, I, 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 and, it's a, and, and, you, and it's an assurance that the conversation we just had will fall on deaf ears and that the problem won't be solved. It's not that it can't be solved. Almost every single problem can be solved. But almost every single problem won't be solved unless there is a firm here and no further flag planted. And whoever does that anymore? Hmm. Oh, did you guys see this about uh, Mueller? He's going to be... Uh, te- no, just kidding. I was about to come over there. <laughs> <laughs> Millions of Americans struggle every day with pain, and a lot of it is from inflammation. And that causes what's called chronic pain. And that's why Relief Factor was created. It's uh, created by physicians, but it's 100% drug-free. So that's an instant clue right there what this is about. I mean, these are doctors who can prescribe drugs, and yet they understood that, uh, you know, we can just keep treating symptoms or we can try to get the body to heal itself in these ways, the way creator and our creator and nature uh, devised for our bodies to fight back against inflammation. And so what Relief Factor does is it uh, tries to stimulate those uh, uh, those healing factors in the body with four key natural ingredients uh, to push back against the inflammation that's causing chronic pain. Many of us here at The Blaze have had outstanding results with this product. I would absolutely be one of them. If you want to try it, you can do it right now. It's just a uh, dollar a day for three weeks, 20 bucks to give Relief Factor a try with their three-week starter kit. Uh, what do you got to lose for a dollar a day? Except hopefully, finally, maybe the pain. Go to relieffactor.com if you want to sign up and learn more about the three-week starter kit available right now at relieffactor.com. All right, when we come back, it's going to be Theology Thursday. We're going to continue our series that we started last week, if you weren't around last Thursday. We started a new series um, based right out of what we've been doing, uh, what we did recently at my home church, on dumb things smart people believe, particularly about faith and ethics. And we're going to talk about the conflation of forgiveness and forgetfulness when we come back. Stay tuned. Well, it's almost time for Theology Thursday. We are going to drop some truth bombs there. And that's what our friends at Swiss America are all about as well, dropping truth bombs. And one of the things they look to do, they really believe uh, when the Lord said the worker is worth his hire. They really believe that. And so they study trends, geopolitical, socioeconomic trends here uh, domestically, but globally as well, and in order to help you be forewarned so you're forearmed to protect um, your assets, uh, your productivity, things you have rightfully earned because the worker is worth his hire. And one of the things they're concerned about is they're watching an American company in Google help China institute a social credit system. And when you throw in here in the United States now that the feds demand that every financial transaction is taxable, trackable, and therefore also blockable, they're doing the math. They're connecting the dots at Swiss America, and they're concerned that something like that could be on the horizon. I mean, folks, is it really that much of a stretch? When, when, when When a generation that has been given 
triggers speech codes and safe spaces and major American universities. When they start taking over major American institutions, when it's their generation's turn, and that's the and that's the environment that they came up in, what they are used to, would it would it really shock you if they pushed for something like that here in the United States? I mean, you're already seeing right now social media clients or giants just hit the to decree, hey, somebody's a racist. Well, what's your evidence? I don't. You are. Right. Is it really that crazy? I don't think it is. That's why you want to get this report called The Secret War from Swiss America. Just give them a call. It is free today. If you call them at 1-800-289-2646, that's 1-800-289-2646 or visit their website, SwissAmerica.com. That's SwissAmerica.com. So we continue a new series we started last week for Theology Thursday, looking at five dumb things otherwise smart people believe, especially when it comes to faith and ethics. And we're going to start like we did last week. Let's hear a little bit from the pastor of my local church. This is Pastor Quentin talking about the second dumb thing otherwise smart people believe. Forgiving means forgetting. How many of you have heard, forgive and forget? Sure you have. Everybody has. Forgive and forget. What does that mean exactly? I'm just supposed to have amnesia after I forgive somebody? What what does it mean? Does forgiving someone mean I need to act like it never happened? Does forgiving someone mean I'm wrong to be a little bit cautious? Years ago, I remember a guy, I was talking with a, a husband and wife, and the guy had cheated on his wife for the second time. And you know what? He was saying, you know, I really am going to change and so forth. And I was, I was kind of skeptical. I was cautious. And so was his wife. His wife felt guilty about that. I didn't. I'm like, that's just common sense. That's just wisdom. You know what? David, King David, committed adultery with Bathsheba. And then... He had her husband, Uriah, knocked off in battle. A year later, Nathan the prophet confronted David, and he eventually confessed his sins. And he was truly, honestly, genuinely very repentant. He was a man after God's own heart, and he was guilt-stricken over this, and he truly was a changed man. And he wrote Psalm 51. And one of the verses in Psalm 51 says this, Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. One of the beautiful things about the Bible is that when you confess your sins to God, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We are clean. We are whiter than snow. Through the cross of Jesus Christ, that's the promise of Scripture, that you're no longer guilty before a holy God, and he never holds that against you. He's never going to take those sins and throw them back in your face. Instead, he says, I dealt with those at the cross. They're fully and freely, completely forgiven. And if you've never come to faith in Jesus Christ, that promise is real for you. If you come in real repentance, you can be forgiven fully and completely, whiter than snow. And yet, even in the life of King David, a man after God's own heart, there were consequences and aftermath of his sins. And not just his sin with Bathsheba, but there, there's some other things in his life. And as a king, he was held to a very high standard by God. And so there were consequences you know, if you read his entire story, you're going to learn what? He, uh, he, he, uh, he was going to face a lot of warfare in, in, his, in, his, in, his, king, in his kingdom. 
His own son Absalom was going to rise up against him and try to usurp his authority and, and pull off a coup. He, 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 was going to, he was actually going to lose the child that Bathsheba uh, bore him and, he, and that child would die. And, uh, and then he really, really, really wanted to build the temple for the Lord. And the, God said to him, you can read about this in 1 Chronicles 22, he says, you're not the one to build the temple, you've shed too much blood, that's going to be for your son to build. God blessed David a great deal, but there were consequences for some of the things that he had done, and God in his wisdom knew that. And so in our own personal relationships, as people ask to forgive us, we forgive them freely because God has forgiven us. We don't hold grudges. We, we are, of all people, the most forgiving because we know um, uh, Colossians 3.13, what does the passage say here? It says, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if anyone has a grievance against one another, just as the Lord forgiven you, so you also are to forgive. It says this in Colossians 3.13. We got that? Um, and it's, it's just that we're called to freely forgive people and not to hold it against them at all. All right? We're not to hold that against them. We're to be really gracious. But you know what? Does that mean that it just never happened? Are we right to be cautious? I often tell people, you know, how many of you have heard of a word, it's this word trustworthy? How many of you have heard that word? Everybody has, trustworthy. There's another word you've never heard of. It's called forgiveness worthy. Because no one is worthy of forgiveness. It's a free gift. It's given to you not because you deserve it or you've earned it. It's given to you because you don't deserve it. That's what forgiveness is. But trust is a different thing. Forgiveness cannot be earned. Trust must be earned. Trust is something given to you once you have a consistent track record of doing the right thing over a period of time. It's like I've told people many times, if you... If you have a bank, like you're, you, you have an account at a bank and you write hundreds of bad checks, they may still keep you as a client and you may clean up your act and stop bouncing checks and they may not throw you out. But it's going to be a while before they give you a loan for $200,000. They want a track record to show that you're trustworthy. And that's just normal. That's just normal life. So this is what I'm saying, guys. Be very gracious and forgiving. But it's okay to not completely just hit erase and completely erase all memory of what happened. No. Wisdom dictates that it takes time to build trust back up. What I kind of hear uh, Pastor Quinn talking about there, in many respects, it's, uh, it's similar to a message I've given when I've preached in churches, um, when I was on the preaching team at our old church, I delivered a form of this message a couple of times. We've done it um, on this show in the past. And that is our culture is greatly confused about many things. And one of the things it's confused about is the difference between condemnation and consequences. Okay. There are, there, the condemnation and consequences aren't always the same. For example, if there's a landlord and he has not kept his building up to code, is the building automatically condemned at, at, at the first sight of any code violation? No. No. There's, there's consequences. Are there consequences, though? Hope so, yeah. Yeah, there's consequences. Okay? So, you know, because people like to take uh, particularly verses that make them uh, feel good. 
and um, give them the uh, the release from the guilt for the things they're doing that they're looking for without any cost. So they'll take a verse like, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And, you know, they'll use that to practice what, uh, there's a fancy, you know, stained glass window theological term. It's called antinomianism. And, and essentially, though, here's what it means. I can now live any way I want because I'm saved. Because God has forgiven me, I can, I can live any way that I want. And this is where the conflation of, you may, if you've had a sincere, well, first of all, I would question, if you've had a sincere salvation experience, your salvation came at the expense of you realizing living the way you want is bad, right? So I, I would question, now, now, we all have the hidden corridors of our minds. We all have the, the sin that so easily ensnares us. We have the behaviors we would prefer the people don't know or the thoughts we would prefer other people don't know about ourselves. We all struggle. We all have our own personal red light districts. That's the human condition. But the idea that you would just say, I'm now going to overtly live for myself. I'm, now, I'm not going to just have a red light district now. I mean, that's my natural. That's going to be my natural habitat. I would question that you've had a real salvation experience because the reason that you came to that cross is that you recognized you're lost without it, number one. But there's this idea that, therefore, though, if I'm a believer that, you know, I'm, I, I escape condemnation. Well, you may escape hell, which is the ultimate, con which is, you know, the ultimate condemnation. I believe that's the condemnation Paul is talking about there. But you're not going to escape the consequences. You know, I've used this analogy before, and I think it, 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 it's fitting for this moment. If I were to permit the red light districts in my own brain to overwhelm me, and if I did that, and I was, severely, and I was sincerely repentant, would the Lord forgive me? Yes. Would I escape eternal condemnation through his forgiveness as a response to my repentance? Yes. Would I escape consequences, though? Might there be consequences to my ability to continue to do the show? Might, therefore, you two suffer consequences on the basis of my own actions, right? Yeah. I would not escape consequences, Because, the, uh, because God is still just. I just might, because he's merciful at the same time, escape eternal condemnation for them. But that would be triggered by my repentance. Where this is, where this is really conflated is when it comes to our politicians. When we try to find all kinds of rationales to just, and, and, and you know why? It's because we need them to be our heroes. See, we think the idolatry is that we want to we, we wanna forgive um, and forget the sins of our favorite politicians. That's not the idolatry. That's the result of the idolatry. The idolatry is you need, you need fill-in misbehaving politician A, B, or C, fill in the blank. You need him to be a hero. That's your, that's, that's, that's where this comes from. You can't just, you can't just say, well, you know what? It's an imperfect world. And I mean, these wouldn't be the choices I'd pick, but I'm happy to pick the one if compelled, I'm happy to pick the one that is the least clear and present danger to my future and way of life. That doesn't, does that fit on a bumper sticker? <laughs> Wouldn't be much of a commercial, right? So what you need is, 
you know, every guy's the next Reagan. Every guy's God's anointed. That's the idol. That's the idol. The idea that God works through imperfect beings to, to work out his perfect will isn't an idol. It's, it's, it, it's the idea, though, that you need that, that imperfect being to escape having to repent for his imperfections to be your hero instead. That's where the idol comes into play. And therefore, they never get called to repentance. This controversial idea from last weekend that those pastors at that church in McLean, Virginia, spent 40 minutes before the service presenting the gospel message to Donald Trump. Where were, what have the rest of his evangelical leadership council been doing the last three years? What have they been doing? Let me tell you what they've been doing. Fist bump. You're the hostess with the mostest, Aaron. Thanks. You're God's anointed, Todd. What was Michelle Bach, Malkin's line? Or not Malkin, uh, Bachman's line. You're the most Christian president we've ever had and we'll never have another one like you. That's what they've been doing. That's what they've been doing. See, that's the idol. The idol is not, I, I wish, you know, I wish Donald Trump would not have been unfaithful to his wife momentary times, written about, and I moved on her like a B word in his memoirs and talked about how he likes to really go after married women uh, for trophies, particularly. I wish all those things wouldn't have happened. I also wish the Democratic Party wasn't the Communist Party either. You know, but since they are, I've got to put up with some things I'd otherwise wish I hadn't. Have we ever, ever argued against that position on this show in any election year regarding no. who it was in any context? No. No. However, how often is that position actually articulated? No. Most of the time, whether it's Bush, Romney, Obama, McCain, pick a name. The, the terminology changes, but most of the time it becomes orange man bad versus Cheeto Jesus saves. It's just a matter of what the terminology is in the particular cycle. See, that's the idol. You need heroes. You are the people who went to Samuel and said, give us a king so we can be like everybody else. And you were given your Barabbas. That's what you asked for. You have not because you asked not. You had exactly what you asked for. And this is one of the main areas where we conflate condemnation with consequences. Have there been consequences for Donald Trump's behavior? Yeah. Michael Cohen went to prison for helping to conceal it, for example. He has suffered political consequences. I mean, given what the economy has done throughout the course of his presidency, I went and looked it up. Do you know what George W. Bush's net approval was in the Real Clear Politics polling average on June 6th, 2003? So about 500 days before his reelect, he was plus 30. Barack Obama was plus five and a half. You know what Donald Trump is? Minus nine. And he's got a better economy than both of those guys. Some of it surely is unprecedented media onslaught, no doubt about it. You know what it also is? There's a portion of people he has forever turned off that he should otherwise be winning over with his performance because of his personal behavior. There have and there always will be consequences. Don't conflate consequences with condemnation. And that's the difference between forgiveness and forgetfulness. Your thoughts, gentlemen, quickly. Oh, well, we're dealing with a order of cheap grace here. It's important to look at the terms and then see what they reveal about the character of God. Forget. Does God forget? Well, 
he's known to be long suffering and he rightly is but he you can only be long suffering if you don't forget had he forgotten how many times over would have this flo- this earth been flooded and destroyed for our sins but he is uh uh long suffering because he doesn't forget that's a starting uh, point for me it is just a a silly um secular progressive idol uh Steve, you're you're perfect in your analogy there, uh, of what people want to think about the character God that of God that simply isn't true. Yeah, and there's this is again this is a very uh, popular mi- misconception as we've been talking about, and you know if you sin against God, if if you uh, go against His will, if you um, break uh, any of His commandments, if you sin even in the most simplest of uh, deceits, all the way up to the most heinous of crimes, it is the same. You are violating God's law in God's eyes. If I uh, tell a lie to Steve, like, I don't know, I like your glasses or something, uh, are the consequences <laughs> for that going to be the same? I'm, I'm just playing. But are the cons- consequences for that in this world going to be the same as if I, you know... Uh, you know, murder one of my cohorts here? Uh, no. There's probably going to be no consequences if I lie to see Steve about something completely inconsequential and if I murder someone. Jeffrey Dahmer might be in heaven right now. We don't know that. We're not God. But it certainly sounded like he came to uh, some sort of forgiveness, some sort of regeneration. Did that save him from the consequences? Did that save any of his victims from the consequences of his sin? Absolutely not. So again, We have to understand the earthly consequences for our sinful behavior or our behavior in general is different than the eternal condemnation or the eternal salvation we have through God's grace if we are his uh, if we are his elect. All right, we are done here. We're going to stick around for a little over time uh, exclusively for Blaze TV subscribers. We'll tape that for you here in just a few minutes. It'll be available for you right here at blazetv.com. We are back at it again tomorrow, noon Eastern, live and on demand, right after Glenn Beck. Until then, John 317. This is Steve Dace. On the Blaze Radio Network.